Welcome back to The Psychonauts, the podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic therapy as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. This is science writer Leonie Chibet coming to you from Cape Town. The voice diaries in this podcast are little news snippets that I'm popping in from time to time in between recording the formal episodes. It's a chance to get up to speed with what's happening around the world in terms of new developments in the realm of psychedelic-assisted therapy. It's an opportunity to discuss what's happening in drug policy reform, breakthroughs on the medical front, or activism from within the medical community and the underground psychedelics crowd. Cork Bay Books is an independent bookstore down on the South Peninsula, about half an hour's drive from Cape Town. They regularly invite authors in to talk about their latest book project. And while the Psychonauts podcast isn't a book bound between two covers, it is essentially a serialized audiobook, which I'm releasing chapter by chapter as the project unfolds. Last month, they opened their store to an evening of discussion about the topic of the potential of mainstreaming psilocybin-assisted therapy here in South Africa. The event was sold out. In fact, there was so much interest that we decided to hold a second event this week. Dr. Rene Asden, a practicing integrative medical doctor from Hart Bay, agreed to sit in discussion with me on both evenings. So here it is, a recording of the second evening's discussion. everybody to Cork Bay Books and what I hope is going to be, in fact I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting interview and discussion and a bit of Q&A with Leonie Chabert, who I'm sure you all know very, very well. She is a wordsmith extraordinaire, a science writer, a published author and for those who really know Leonie, you will know that she, um, she is not shy to address issues that are always a little bit hard to tackle and yet completely relevant and appropriate to the time that we're in and issues we need to look at. So she will write about food scarcity, about um, the chemicals in the environment, about climate change, factors that uh, are subjects that she is not shy to address and does so, so beautifully and eloquently. So welcome, Leonie. A little bit about why I'm here. So my name's Rena Aston. I'm a GP in, in Hartbay, and I practice a kind of medicine, we call it integrative medicine, where I combine conventional Western medicine with various modalities from complementary medicine and alternative medicine and bodywork and any sort of um, uh, evidence-based alternative medicine that's been shown to be effective. So really, it's a way of treating people very holistically. And in my practice over the years, I've noticed more and more that the majority, by far, of what I'm seeing is mental illness. I don't really like to call it mental illness because that gives it a kind of pathology that it doesn't really deserve. Because what I'm seeing with anxiety, with depression, with post-traumatic stress disorder, it's all almost normal responses to the stresses of life today. 
So we tend to, in the medical field, to pathologize everything. But in fact, it seems to be the more normal way to actually express ourselves in the world because the world is, let's face it, full of a lot of suffering. So a lot of my patients come to me because they want to get off their antidepressants. And usually the reason for that is that the antidepressant has served them well for a short period of time, but after a while, it blunts them to everything. So it not only blunts you to the pain, but it also takes away the joy and the excitement. So even people who have tried that method are looking for different ways of treating mental dis-ease, if I can put it in a better way. And then, of course, lots of clients come to me because they don't want to take a chemical that they feel is just putting a band-aid over a cancer. It's not addressing the situation. So it's quite um, hard for us to find different methods of treatment that can really assist people in coping with depression and anxiety, but not be toxic or detrimental. And Leone has been discussing in her podcasts, The Psychonauts, which I hope some of you have heard, but if you haven't, you will be inspired to. She has been discussing the use of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And she's been looking at research over the world, um, abroad, at what people are doing, clinical trials that are happening. And in the podcast, has been really exploring the possibilities of using psilocybin in a clinical context to treat these mental diseases that we have. So I hope that as we go on, we'll talk a little bit about that. What I do want to say is a bit of a disclaimer, if nobody minds before we go any further, is that Leonie and I are not advocating the use, the use of psilocybin or magic mushrooms as a therapeutic tool or as a recreational drug in any way. We're not advocating its use or promoting it. All we're doing is providing a platform to have debate around this issue and to be able to discuss it openly, mirroring what is happening all over the world. So we're really just opening up the discussion and bringing it to Cape Town and to everybody here. And yeah, so just to remember that we're not looking at, at magic mushrooms as a recreational drug, that uh, this is about using psilocybin as an entheogen and as a legit, legitimate treatment for mental health disorders or disease. Uh, also a heads up that we're recording this, uh, this event, so just to be aware and cognizant of that if anybody wants to say something or not. So, Leone, I'm so looking forward to this. It's going to be great. So, really, I thought maybe a good way to start is if you could explain to us a little bit about why you chose the medium of a podcast. I mean, you could have chosen a blog or an article or a book, or why a podcast to bring this, this issue across? Thanks, uh, Renee. And uh, kudos to Renee for being willing to host a second session of this nature. Um, to borrow a term from the neuroscientist Sam Harris, this topic is still so radioactive <laughs> that many publishing houses don't want to come near it. And that's one of the reasons I decided to launch into a podcast. So I've spent the last sort of 17 years writing about climate change, mostly food security. And it's a long lead time from starting a book, writing it up, getting it through the publishers and out um, to a South African audience. And even so, uh, a book will only reach about 3,000 readers. Um, and about four years ago, um, when I stumbled on the story, 
and discovered that there was a court case about to happen this year, I realized that the story was far too important. We needed to get it out now so we could start a conversation ahead of the court case. Um, and uh, we didn't have time to wait for a publishing house to endorse or fund or give me the go-ahead. Mm. So how it happened was about, it wasn't about 2014, I heard about this woman who I had known about and known, I'd known her through uh, sort of overlapping writing circles. And she's a, a typical sort of suburban grandmother type. And I heard that she'd been arrested for allegedly having two kilograms of dried magic mushrooms in her home and that she was supposedly taking people through these deep-dose psychedelic journeys, which, of course, I knew nothing about. And uh, I was intrigued by this, so I thought I would just do... I, and Anyway, I, I heard about her arrest, how there was a possibility of a 15-year jail term for her. Uh, she seemed like a very unlikely candidate to go to jail for such a long time. And then I heard about how she was going to launch a court bid in the Western Cape High Court, where she wanted to challenge the constitutionality of our drug law, where she was going to say that psilocybin is not dangerous or addictive, and it has huge medical and spiritual potential, and that there's no reason for it to be illegal, and that actually it should be available to all South Africans. Anyway, I thought I would do this one single feature article for a local magazine on what I thought would be this quirky subculture in Cape Town. And then I started to look abroad um, and discovered a whole massive body of scientific literature that explained how profoundly um, uh, powerful psilocybin actually is as a medicine for treating trauma-related mood disorders and addictions. And, um, you know, people were just starting to describe psilocybin as they were comparing it to the discovery of penicillin a century, a century ago in terms of what that meant for, for, for healthcare. It's comparable to um, the advent of birth control for women and what it gave them in terms of agency over their lives and their bodies and their education. Um, it really is a powerful, powerful medicine. Um, and uh, so I realized that the story was very important and the court case was due to happen this year. In fact, there's some interesting developments around that we could talk about. But then as, so I decided rather than wait for a publishing house to give me the go ahead, I would just launch into it myself as a self-funded podcast where I would read it for the audience rather than have them go and, and uh, buy a book because I think that has more reach. And so it's been released as a serialized audiobook in a way. Um, but what I found fascinating in the development of the story is my own level of knowledge has grown substantially. And now I come away from the story, uh, I'm about halfway through, I've got about seven more chapters that I'd like to do. But I realize now that, um, you know, um, Renee referred to antidepressants just now as being um, like a, a plaster over a cancer. And really, in many respects, they are. It's just a, a palliative um, treatment. It's a way of treating the pain rather than, than the disease. And suddenly we discover that we have a substance here that actually treats the disease. In just a few deep-dose sessions where you have the right support, you can actually exorcise the cancer. And so I come away from this realizing that actually, if the substance is available, is so powerful, then we almost have an obligation towards civil disobedience until the substance becomes available. Something, something that I've tried to do with the story is to, um, to use good old-fashioned storytelling to bring the science to the public. So um, with narrative-style long-form writing, you want to show rather than tell. I don't want to just talk about what the science is saying about how this chemical functions in the brain. 
I've interviewed people who have gone into the underground community and have sought out this treatment themselves and have returned from these remarkable psychedelic experiences and can explain to us how psychedelic learning happens. People often say that psychedelic learning is like therapy on steroids. You go into one deep dose session and you come away feeling like you've had a decade's worth of therapy in a night. So I've tried in the storytelling process that I've used in the podcast to demonstrate how other people have experienced this profound, powerful medicine. And uh, yeah, let me hand back over to Renee. Okay. So I know you don't want to go too much into the technicalities of the, the way it works, but can you maybe tell us a little bit about the research and the trials that are being done abroad and what is happening uh, in academia, in a way, around psilocybin and psychedelics and how um, how that can maybe... Well, let's look at that first and then we can see how it impacts our own situation. Yeah? Okay. So psilocybin is just one of a number of psychedelics that have this potential. Um, so psilocybin is from magic mushrooms, there's ayahuasca, which is a, a brew that comes from um, the Amazon, there's ibogaine, which comes from Gabon area, um, LSD is synthesized from a, um, a fungus that occurs naturally on wheat. Um, these are all substances that do something in the brain, which we can talk about later, um, which result in these very profound spiritual experiences or kind of a sense of enlightenment. Um, what is happening in clinical trials abroad, so there are a number of um, uh, medical teams at Johns Hopkins University in the States, Imperial College London, New York University, um, and, and several other institutions that are coming on board now. For several years now, they've been doing um, research that is licensed by the state where they are putting people through um, therapeutic processes to treat um, various uh, mood-related uh, disorders and addictions. So people with treatment-resistant depression, people with alcohol or nicotine dependence, people with, uh, with a PTSD that has not responded to, to other drugs or talk therapy, etc. Um, the model for how they are uh, using these substances um, they will put volunteers through a 12-week therapy process where each week they have a therapy session. Most of those sessions, incidentally, are just ordinary talk therapy. So they'll have a few sessions to prepare them for a deep-dose psychedelic experience. Then they'll have two dosing sessions. The first session, they'll have a sort of an entry-level quantity of psilocybin, which um, it amounts to the equivalent of about 2 grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms per 70 kilograms of body weight. The second dose will be about a week or two later. It will be the equivalent of about four grams of mushrooms. And then they'll have several sessions afterwards where they, um, uh, where they do integration. And uh, the interesting thing is that it's, it's the subjective experience you have during that dosing session that results in what is described as these positive mood and behavior changes that can last for months, even years after the, the session. So, you know, if you, if you drink too much wine and you get incapacitated, you kind of fall over, you need to have a sleep, you stop developing memories and you black out. That's not what happens on mushrooms <laughs> at all. You may be incapacitated, but it's like your brain, your mind. It's like the TARDIS. If any of you ever watched Doctor Who, it's like the TARDIS. On the outside, it looks like a small little box. You open the door and it's massive on the inside. That is kind of what happens in, this, in these deep dose psychedelic sessions. Um, the first hour, it, it, 
And I should just say that it has to be supported in the right therapeutic super supervised context. You need to be safe, you need to be comfortable. Um, having the right playlist is absolutely essential to the whole experience. And having a, a relatively sober, supervised, experienced sitter looking after you is absolutely critical. And many, many people have contacted me over the months asking for advice. And, they, and I always say to them, please do not do this on your own. You won't get the maximum benefit. And yet many people still do. And they, they do put themselves at risk. The risks associated with these substances are very easily managed. But we have to be responsible, you know. Um, so the first hour of a session usually involves these incredible um, psychedelic experiences where you see almost like the inside of a mosque, the, that incredible mosaic work, the incredible colors, but it all moves and undulates. Um, it's like a drop of water hits your eardrum and then this visual explosion happens. But then at the same time, you have all these incredible insights. Um, what's really interesting is that the research is showing that um, the deeper the experience, the more mystical the experience, even for the atheists, um, the better the outcomes are. So the, the deeper your mystical experience during one of these sessions, the more likely you are to treat your depression afterwards or for your, your, your dependency to, to break. Mm. Okay. Wow. That sounds like quite a, a lovely analogy with that uh, box of Dr. Hughes. That's quite a great analogy. Um, so, maybe, Ioni, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening locally in the local scene? Maybe also referencing a bit to this court case that you spoke about earlier, and, and maybe how people are using it locally and in what context. All right, okay. Um, so, Monica Cromhurt, who's the, the woman who was arrested um, for hosting, supposedly hosting these Russian journeys, um, she... Uh, when she was arrested, she decided to launch this court process. Essentially, what will happen... Sorry, mm -hmm. I need to step back a little bit. Let's talk about what's happening in the underground community. Um, for, the underground community in South Africa has been around for a while, and the Monica Comhote case has um, made it slightly more public. Basically, there are a lot of people who, over the years, have discovered that these deep-dose psilocybin sessions are actually quite... Um, powerful. And uh, this is quite difficult to answer because legally I can't put individuals at risk. But um, because obviously psilocybin, as you know, is a Schedule 7 drug, which means it's the same as heroin or crystal meth, which is tick. So there are individuals who believe so, so much in the potency of this medicine that they offer, um, in the underground space, they offer these journeys. So what's happening in the underground community? So, so there are many individuals who, who offer these experiences in a supported context. So you will arrive at the person's house, you will have fasted off alcohol and meat for a couple of days beforehand, your last meal would have been at lunchtime on the day. These experiences happen much better at night. It's just something about uh, on psilocybin, your senses are so heightened that you want as few sensory distractions as possible so you can have a deeply internal journey. So these things, the sessions happen at night. You will take um, usually about five grams of powdered dried psilocybe mushrooms mixed in with a warm brew of usually a rooibos tea. You'll go and sit down on a, on a comfortable sort of a mat or something, and then you'll have a 
probably a four to six hour experience with people supervising you. So that's what's happening in the underground community. In the medical community, there's nothing happening, very little. Um, there are a few, in the underground community, there are some medical practitioners, doctors and psychiatrists and therapists who are working in the space. They're not offering medical support through these sessions, but they happen to be medically skilled while doing the underground work. So they do this at great risk to themselves. Um, there are a lot of uh, non-medical volunteers who offer the sitting um, sort of, I don't want to say service, that's the wrong word, because it's more of a gift. But um, they offer something that our mainstream medicine is not willing to talk about or discuss yet. I've One of the most frustrating but enlightening processes of writing this book has been trying to get formal quotes from uh, what used to be the Medicines Control Council, is now the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, the Registrar of Medicine, um, the Medical Research Council, um, academics within the public mental health research space. I phoned and emailed and phoned and emailed and phoned and emailed easily by now 50 times, and I just get stonewalled or passed on to someone else, or, they, or actually sometimes people are even just rude. So my 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 endeavor is to get two things happening through the podcast. The firstly is to um, is to get South Africans going into their doctor's rooms and saying, okay, so psilocybin-assisted therapy for treating trauma-related mood disorders and addictions is going to be legal for medical use in the States within five years. What are you doing to make that available to us here in South Africa? The more medical people are asked that question, the more they might start to lobby from within the sector. And then the second thing is to start a conversation within the medical community um, where they are starting to verse, get, get well-versed. So um, the South African situation, we are very far behind in terms of where the zeitgeist is. In, overseas, in, in the States and in Europe, this conversation it has exploded. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. The genie is completely out of the bottle. You have really public figures coming out and saying that they've done this, this therapy in the underground world. Um, MDMA, which is not uh, psychedelic, but works in a very similar way, and the treatment is very similar, has been, um, the, the, the Food and Drug Administration in the States has been endorsing clinical trials using this to treat PTSD for years. And it literally is within three years, probably, of licensing MDMA as a therapy in the States. So, and, and psilocybin is not far behind it. Um, the FDA is, is pushing for psilocybin to be, to be medicalized for treating depression. And it's going to come. So the, the, the opportunity for South Africa, the urgent need in South Africa is, is, there are a couple of things. Firstly, we need our own drug policy to change. That can happen quite easily. The Monica Kronhout case is one way of doing that. The second thing is we need um, uh, to train up service providers. So the issue is not getting the drug rolled out. The issue is getting the drug rolled out in a way that is affordable, that it doesn't become a highly medicalized, strictly regulated substance because then it will be too expensive. And the third thing is, is that, um, that medical practitioners, and they don't just have to be psychiatrists or doctors, but social workers and nurses um, and, and counselors and uh, lay health workers can actually be trained up in how to offer this supported um, therapy. The court case, the, in fact, the, the cannabis case is a very important development. The cannabis case was, um, the, the Constitutional Court was asked 
to rule on the 2017 Judge Dennis Davis ruling, which allowed, which which basically said um, that we could be free to use cannabis in the privacy of our own homes. When and um, Monica Cromwell's legal team was waiting for the for the Constitutional Court to come back on that. So um, at the in the cannabis case, uh, the legal team was able to show using evidence based. Uh, um, research that cannabis is is clearly much less harmful and dangerous and addictive than alcohol or can or, or tobacco, and on the basis of that, you can't have it, you, it's not reasonable to have two of those substances legal and one substance illegal, and on the basis of that, cannabis should be legalized or decriminalized, and the constitutional courts upheld that ruling. So now. Um, what Monica's team is going to show is that psilocybin mushrooms are even less harmful and uh, and risky than cannabis, and on that basis should therefore be made legal. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe we should just talk about the the harms and risks that the UK study that was done around this. Or do you want to ask a different question? First? Um, no, I think do that, okay. and then we can maybe look a bit at the spirituality of it, which may be a bit of a block. I think let's talk that first. Okay. So in terms of the harms and risks, you know, there are a lot of myths out there around um, psychedelics, about them causing psychosis and schizophrenia, etc., etc. In fact, that's a, maybe a good point to bring in one of the other disclaimers, is that um, you, for someone who already has a diagnosis or is predisposed to schizophrenia or psychosis, psychedelics are not a good idea. It's well established. It's not because psychedelics trigger psychosis or schizophrenia any more than any other substance would. Mm. Um, it, it's just not a good idea if you already know that you have a family history of that. So let's just put that out there. And but, even to say around cannabis use, one has to be careful. So I think it, it applies broadly to any entheogen that changes one's perception and drops barriers. Yeah, yeah and in fact, I mean... Uh, um, even alcohol or a, a traumatic family event can trigger a psychotic or, or mm. schizophrenic episode if one is predisposed. So, anyway, let's just put that out there. But um, so, in twenty in, in two thousand and nine, um, uh, the UK government appointed a task team in the to, to look at the twenty most widely used and abused substances in the UK and rank them according to the risks and harms to the individual and to society. And they published these findings in The Lancet in 2010. Um, really important findings. They find that, that uh, if you look at the, the bar graph, um, alcohol and tobacco are right up here. Uh, crystal meth, um, cannabis are here, right down on the far end. Um, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, they they're, they're so small they hardly even leave leave the x-axis. So it's a there's a really strong evidence base to show that these substances are not as harmful um, and risky as as the myth holds true. Um, and on the basis of that, that's why um, you know if alcohol and tobacco are going to be legal, then certainly those substances should be legal as well. Um, maybe we come to the spiritual side of it right at the end, because that's such a, a broad topic. I'm sure people want to contribute to that discussion. Um, Leonie, maybe, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, we're living in a society with so much post-traumatic stress. People have been deeply traumatized by the years of apartheid. 
Do you think that psilocybin therapy is translatable into our healthcare context? You did touch on it, but if you can elaborate a little bit, do you think it's doable? So that's a very good question, and, and one that I, that I, when I started out the project, I thought the answer was absolutely yes. Now I think it's yes, but. So I think it needs to be done carefully and contextually. Um, what's fascinating is, is looking at work coming from around the world where people are using different psychedelics to, to treat um, so many trauma-related um, issues. And... Uh, so there's rather a lot that I want to say, and I'm, I'm not quite sure where to go. I think what I think what's important in South Africa is to remember that we're not dealing, in most cases, we're not dealing with people who are struggling with a single traumatic event that they need to address, like a single violent attack or a single rape or a single car accident. Uh, in many respects, we're dealing with people who come from this polytrauma background. Mm. Um, I mean. One way that I try to describe it in the podcast is this idea of the passive violence of poverty. Um, there's a lot of literature to show that if you grow up in a context where, you're, where every single day you are exposed to stress, not just the stress of, you know, say an abusive parent beating you or, you know, your neighborhood being violent, but the, the repeated trauma of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. The, the constant low-grade stress of not knowing whether your mum is going to come home safely because she's using dangerous public transport, that dials your nervous system up into this constant hypervigilant state. Um, and many of the people who then... Uh, oh, and incidentally, um, when I was researching one of the episodes of the podcast, I stumbled upon this research that was done in Deep Cert, um by um, various academics, and they looked at... Um, the extent of rape taking place in Deep itself, which for those of you who don't know is an informal settlement outside Johannesburg. And they found that something like 50% of the men they interviewed had raped or assaulted a woman in the year leading up to the interview. And many of them had done so more than once. What was interesting about the research is they weren't just looking at the extent of rape. They were trying to look for the reasons behind it. And what they found is that most of the men who, who admitted to having been involved in this kind of violence had themselves been abused as children. Most of them had been abused as children. They'd either been bullied or they'd been beaten, and they'd just grown up subject to violence and become violent as adults. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be naive of me to just say, throw the substance out there, it's going to fix everyone. Because many, in many contexts, people are going back every single day to the same um, structural um, context that caused the disease in the first place. But what I would say is that there's still opportunity here. I mean, I would love to see um, uh, clinical trials done around the use of Ibogaine. So this is an interesting story in that, so Ibogaine is a very potent psychedelic. Um, it comes from Gabon area. And uh, it is illegal in the States and has been used extensively in the States to treat opiate addiction. Um, it was, the, you know, people in the underground community figured out a while ago that it's a very, very potent intervention. And now with the, with the opiate um, epidemic they seem to have in the States, which incidentally is thanks to capitalist interests in the pharmaceutical industry, and that's not conspiracy theory, it's well documented. But... Um, but uh, Ibogaine is a really powerful intervention, and people are seeking out the treatment there. The interesting context in South Africa 
is that for reasons I don't quite know, Ibogaine never got onto the radar in the way that psychedelics <coughs> did in the States. So until very recently, Ibogaine was a complementary medicine in South Africa and was being used by some rehab clinics to treat alcohol and other kinds of dependencies. And then in 2016, it was finally scheduled by the, the what was then the, whole, uh, the Medicines, Council. Medicines Control Council. Mm -hmm. But they didn't make it a Schedule 7, the way the other psychedelics are. They, de they deliberately made it a Schedule 6, meaning that they acknowledged the fact that it had a medical potential. Um, and uh, so doctors can prescribe it for rehab treatments here, which makes us a, a kind of, you know, unique. We also have these, we do have massive uh, addiction problems and we have this trauma. So we do have opportunities to get around all of the red tape that surround doing a Schedule 7 trial. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is that, um, and this is my interpretation, the, the MCC has not released, drawn up or released the regulations that would then instruct the medical community on how to um, administer and, and supply um, Ibogaine. And by not releasing those regulations, um, they basically have shut down the treatment process. So it's almost like a bureaucratic way of, of stopping Ibogaine treatment. But we have this amazing opportunity here where we could actually run trials. I'd love to see the medical community get involved. And I think also what you're saying about trauma, um, you know, they think that one of the ways that the psilocybin in the magic mushroom works is by maybe dampening down the amygdala, that part of the brain that is fat and flat. And I mean, that may be very appropriate in our context, maybe even in terms of microdosing, rather than doing big doses. But this is all conjecture. We need the trials, we need people actually to do the research before we can even say that's that's the way to go. Yeah, Yeah, and I think this is the big frustration is that, um, you know, until we are brave enough to have a, an adult conversation about this, mm -hmm. and until we have the, the legislation changed, we can't, we can't do any evidence-based research, mm -hmm. which is the frustration. But um, that point about the amygdala is really important. And, and um, oh, this is the interesting thing around what uh, modern neuroscience uh, is now showing us about how these substances work. So um, in the 1960s, there was this interesting coming together of um, philosoph Western philosophers who were dabbling with Eastern mysticism. So they were, they were starting to experiment with um, meditation-type processes. Mm. Sorry? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All sorts of meditation processes. And at the same time, they were starting to dabble with psychedelics because psychedelics had escaped the lab. They were um, incidentally Prior to the 1960s, there was a plenty. There were sort of three decades of research using different psychedelics to treat mood disorders, and then they escaped the lab, got into the recreational scene. Nixon got hysterical because it produced a whole bunch of anti-establishment thinkers when he needed troops to go off and fight the Vietnam War. Again, this is not um, conspiracy theory; it's yes. well documented. But the point is that in the 60s, um, these philosophers who were dabbling with the meditation were also dabbling with psychedelics. And they started to see a very similar thing happening within themselves. And in fact, to the point where they were all, some of them said, and it's a beautiful Alan Watts quote, where he says, you start to see that the, the psychedelics, just a few sessions on psychedelics give you these big breakthroughs. 
and then you realize you've been speaking on the phone, now you can hang up the phone and you can carry on. Just using meditation, you can achieve the same thing. So jumping forward to today and what neuroscience is, is showing us, <clears throat> Yale University a few years ago wanted to understand what was happening in the brains of meditators. So they took seasoned meditators, popped them in an MRI scan and had a look-see. And then a few years later, a bunch of researchers at Imperial College London wanted to see what was happening in the brains of people on the psychedelic trip. And they put them in an MRI scan and had a look-see. And then accidentally ended up comparing notes a few years later. And what they saw was very, very similar. Um, <clears throat> I won't get too technical now, but what's interesting is that it seems as though both processes do something to the brain that interrupts OCD-type thinking, ruminative thinking. So, um, any, uh, a lot of the mood disorders, a lot of the addiction, addictive-type behaviours are linked to this ruminative thought which leads to this downward spiral into depression, etc., etc. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways that uh, the researchers describe it, they say, you know, through life, throughout life we have uh, these sensory inputs that our eyes and our ears and our, our bodies basically feed into our brains. And over time, we brain train ourselves into certain response mechanisms. And they say it's a little bit like you have a snowy hill and you send a sled down the hill. And every time the sled goes down the hill, its tracks leave a groove in the snow. And the more you do that, the, it just, the, the sled just goes down the same tracks. Eventually, it's very hard for the sled to go in any other direction. You get brain trained into that reactive process. Um, and, but then what seems to happen on these psychedelics, and it also happens with long, slow meditation process, is that it's like putting a fresh blanket of snow on the hill, and then this, just for a while, the sled, the sled can go down in pretty much any direction. Um, so what's remarkable is that uh, it seems that that is how you can end up with these mood and behavior changes that, that, are, that are possibly permanent, um, which is not what antidepressants do. Um, one of the ways that I've tried to um, articulate the, the, how these two processes complement each other in terms of keeping the, the, the brain, the, the, the snowy hill repowdered all the time. Think of it as, uh, as oral hygiene. If you want to take care of your teeth, you need to brush, floss, and visit the dentist regularly. <clears throat> that is like what your daily meditation practice is, or going for a run, or surfing or doing some meditation, and maybe even going to a counsellor, um, having a little bit of talk therapy. That's like your daily oral hygiene. But every now and then, you need a root canal. And a psilocybin session, or a psychedelic session, is like the root canal. It's a small surgical intervention that lances an abscess and allows you healing and recovery. So this isn't saying that psychedelics need to be treated as a silver bullet solution. They're part of a wider suite of daily practices and regular practices that we can, it's like, it's like taking care of your nutrition. You know, you just need to get into these regular habits of eating well, moving your body, etc. Yeah. I love the comparison to root canal treatment, which explains to you a bit why these aren't necessarily drugs you want to take recreationally. You know, it's not necessarily fun. And I think that one needs to appreciate that it is a bit of a lancing of an abscess and that the, the process of using these um, entheogens is not for entertainment, I would say. Yeah. That's a good point.
point. Um, you also you sparked another thought, which went as fast as it arrived. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I just remembered. So there's this idea that that um, playing with psychedelics or using psychedelics is a little bit like Russian roulette. So for every fantastic trip you have, there's a really, really bad trip locked and loaded and just waiting. Um, and the truth of the matter is, if you do double psychedelics in the wrong context, if you get the set and setting wrong, you can have a very uncomfortable experience. What is interesting, though, is that <clears throat> some, a, a, a survey done by Johns Hopkins wanted to try and understand how, what percentage of psychedelic experiences are these so-called bad trips. Um, they specifically did a survey around psilocybin, so this isn't including ayahuasca or LSD or anything else. Um, but basically, the people that filled in the survey, uh, it, it looks as though something like, uh, was it one out of three? I, I could, I stand to be corrected, but something like one out of three trips is not a bad trip, but a difficult trip. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is that it was still a, a very powerful experience. It was maybe a little bit overwhelming for some people, even terrifying, but it was nevertheless a profoundly meaningful experience. So, and, and in most cases, people felt equipped to deal with it. Um, so, that is an interesting thing to bear in mind. You're not going in necessarily for a joyride. You might have a joyride if you're lucky. You might also have a really tough time. And if you are working with people who are experienced in how to handle this process, they will be there and support you through it. Um. Yeah, and then the only, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit, and maybe there are people in the audience who have a gooder, a gooder, a better, <laughs> a better understanding of exactly how the psilocybin works, but it may even be a possibility in the future that one can microdose rather than take big doses, just in the nature of what psilocybin does in the brain. And so, just can I give a little... Brief thing, uh, just in the way that obviously we don't know exactly how it works, we don't know how antidepressants work either, but what we do know with the psilocybin is that it's a kind of a pro-drug. So in the body, it is metabolized to psilos, to uh, psilos, psilocybin, yeah? Psilocin, exactly, it metabolized into psilocin. And then the, the psilocin has actual... Uh, processes that happen in the body that are pretty much biological. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's got receptors. So it acts like a serotonin and it will bind to serotonin receptors and that will sort of set a cascade of things going. So your antidepressants, like your serotonin inhibitors, will block your serotonin receptors, causing serotonin to build up in the gaps between the the endings of the nerves, but the psilocybin acts in a completely different way. And so the thinking is that it actually encourages growth of neurons into different areas of the brain. So it makes connections in ways that the brain hadn't done before. And to be completely scientific about it, to give you like the right jargon, the, the um, psilocin binding to those uh, serotonin receptors, it causes a release of a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a kind of hormone, which in a way is like super growth for your nerves, gets your nerve endings really growing and making connections and connecting parts of the brain that might not have otherwise. 
the other thing it does is it increases glutamate secretion in the brain. And glutamate is something responsible for improving your cognition, your memory, your retention of knowledge. So you know when a person gets depressed, from maybe from your experience, that it's, you become demotivated, you can't concentrate, you can't focus. So the psilocybin is actually acting biochemically. If one looks at, takes away all the romance of it or the, the trip part of it, it's acting in a biochemical way that's really beneficial. And I mean, those are just two of the things that it does. You know, blocking the amygdala is part of it, increasing your prefrontal cortex functioning. So it's got a whole lot of knock-on effects that make the substance itself really worth looking at as a therapeutic option. Yeah? So I don't know, the only other things you want to add? Shall we open it to the floor? There, was, uh, there were a couple of things I wanted to just mention. Um, that point about the amygdala is really important. Um, you know, a lot of people who have gone through the clinical trials at either Johns Hopkins or Imperial College, when they describe... Um, so these are people who have had a treatment-resistant mental illness. Sorry to use that word. No, um, no, no. And have not responded... Disease. Disease, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, and they've not responded to antidepressants. And they, they've described it as, as if the antidepressants are like they're monsters down in the basement and they are slamming the doors shut on the basement and hammering it closed. Whereas <clears throat> with these uh, psychedelics and psilocybin, it's like they, are, they can open up the basement doors, they can walk down to the basement with a torch, and then they can actually look at all the monsters and confront them. And, and what seems to be happening in the brain is that because the psilocybin is, is shutting down the amygdala, um, you can confront these um, memories that you might need to deal with, but you're not overwhelmed by the fear and the emotionality that you mm. traditionally attach with it, mm. which is why people are having had you know, decades of sitting with a trauma, decades of sitting with a memory, can have one or two or three dosing sessions on the substance and actually confront the monster that they've actually been avoiding for so long. So that mm. amygdala um, point is really important. Mm. The other thing I wanted to mention, that the episode that I'm working on at the moment is um, uh, I was lucky enough recently to do an interview with a medical doctor who is treating her cluster headaches with regular psilocybin. And what I find fascinating about this is that cluster headaches, like depression, can be a terminal illness. Some people have been known in such desperation, in order to escape the pain of their cluster headaches, have taken their lives in extremely violent ways. Even though they know that an hour later the pain will be relieved, they are still so desperate to escape that they take their own lives. Um, depression can be terminal for many people. It may end in, in self-harm. So if psilocybin is a way to arrest that terminal illness, why is it that our medical community is not talking about bringing this to us? It's an outrage, to be honest, an absolute outrage that it's not available. You know, I think that part of why it's not available, I think there are two things, and we can talk about it, but certainly there is the fact that probably you cannot patent psilocybin. So once you can't patent something, there's no incentive for the drug companies to do a search or put money into it or, or any kind of um, want to get it out there. I mean, already now with cannabis, they're trying to synthesize synthetic cannabis, and it's deadly. People are dying from it. 
you know, so, so, so long as it can't be patented, it's great for people who, who want it to be available to everybody at a decent price, but sadly the research doesn't get done. And I think also possibly the other thing is that it borders on the spiritual. This is very hard for the medical community. You know, to, I mean, medicine hasn't even really acknowledged that there's a spiritual side to illness. You know, it's quite absurd that, that medical doctors who themselves will go to the mosque or go to the synagogue or go to church, but cannot unite the fact that we are body, mind, spirit. So in the medical fraternity, because it is a bit of a fraternity, there's still quite a way to go. Yeah. This is, uh, I think, one of the most difficult areas to talk about. So um, how do you view this? So psychedelics do open us up to a, a mystical experience. It's the only word I have. Uh, I'm going to use that as a placeholder word. So I regard myself as a materialist and an atheist. There are many people out there who are more metaphysical. Um, and the way we experience um, psychedelics and the world when we're on psychedelics um, blurs the boundaries. And because we have this polarized um, world where you're either kind of this materialist or this metaphysicist, it's hard for the two to speak to one another. And I think that's where we have a lot of um, clashing of, of worldviews. And I think we need to find a way to overcome that. So some people regard consciousness as being a universal thing. So there's this kind of universal broadcast of consciousness. You and I are born into our physical bodies. We just become a radio transmitter where for the duration of our lives, we receive a signal, we tune into that, con that consciousness if we choose to, and we respond to it. Whereas uh, an atheist like myself would regard, you know, the, the experience of consciousness as just a product of the chemicals and the electricity in my brain, and that when this body shuts down, the, everything that was me just evaporates and is gone, and that there's no consciousness that continues without me. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. The point is, though, that we do, um, on the substance, we have a, a, an experience of feeling like there is something bigger than ourselves. That's partly where the healing comes from. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. Uh, we can find a way to, to wrestle with the difficultness of that uh, in, another, in another context. Yeah, yeah. Shall we open up to discussion to the floor? Just ask everyone to be cognizant of the fact that this is an illegal substance. So maybe not to mention names or places when you're posing questions or making comments. So anything you would like to ask Leonie about the podcast or the, the psilocybin itself, Magic Mushroom? And also please feel free to ask Renee for her views as a medical doctor. Sure. I've got a question for both of you. Um, you were talking about a lot of research um, for psilocybin as treatment for the brain. Has there been any research beyond the brain? So like if the, like the function of the brain is to function optimally and take out of it, I mean, surely then it could heal other things. things. Yeah, good question. I don't know Is myself. Any? No, I don't. But I mean, you know, what beyond, Beyond the mind. brain function yeah. in that way, mm -hmm. in cog um, like thinking about cognition or thinking or depression. Mm -hmm. Not that I've seen. I mean, what is interesting? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that um, 
LSD and psilocybin have been shown to treat or, or slow down uh, cluster headaches. No one really understands what, what is happening actually to stop the pain. So that's not to do with cognition or spirituality yeah. or whatever. It's actually arresting the pain. Yeah. Excuse me, the pain. I don't know what's driving that. Mm. Yeah. I'm also not sure. And yeah, treating pain. And, you know, I don't think any research has really... There must be research done on treating pain. But in terms of treating arthritis or irritable bowel, or, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could access them? So then if we're talking about mental dis-ease, then... Has anything looked at in terms of dementia or anything like that with elderly, older people? There, there is some speculation mm. that certain fungi might be able to mm. help with sort of neurogenesis. I think that's... Yeah, mm. yeah but I'm saying helping with mm. memory. Mm. But I haven't seen any, any sort of evidence-based work on that. I do want to tell a very quick anecdote, though. Um, I was um, <clears throat> observing at a <laughs> ceremony a while ago. I, I was invited to, to sit and just see how things were, were done. And, um, and obviously I can't say too much because there are confidentiality issues, but there was an individual there who uh, has the most debilitating chronic pain to the point where he has to take morphine every day. And um, I mean, his story is just heartbreaking. And he emerged from his journey saying that for the first time in seven years, he'd had three or four hours of being completely and utterly pain-free. Amazing. I don't know whether that lasted after the session. And obviously, he can't live his life in a psychedelic state. But he had a few hours of relief that night. Amazing. Yes, yeah. I'm sitting here and I'm shaking. I'm shaking with anger. I'm a GP and I'm a homeopathic practitioner. And I'm very, very, very concerned about the promotion of untried medications and the glorification of this mm. as a kind of an answer to everything. I'm sitting here shaking, literally. There are wonderful, wonderful approaches to dealing with trauma. There's the rapid eye movement approach, it doesn't deal, it doesn't have drugs, it doesn't have effects on the brain in any way. Profoundly, we don't know enough about what the effects are on the brain. There's mindfulness, there's meditation, as you've mentioned. I, I work with a lot of people with mental, mental disease. Um, the last thing I want to put one of my patients with mental disease through is the most frightening psychedelic trip. And as you say, it's got to be well controlled, it's got to be in a situation with somebody you can look after. I worry. Is your name Penny by any chance? Sorry? Is your name Penny by any chance? Oh, okay. No, it's, it's interesting because I, I did a talk on Kate Talk a while ago, and a woman with your very concerns, a, a medical practitioner, phoned through. I think your, your concerns are, um, are fair, but I think if you. Sorry, are you finished with your question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I think if you if you look at um, some of the research that's coming out, you will see that a lot of these fears. They're unfounded. They, they're built on years of um, a very skewed story around these substances. So we're not advocating irresponsible use. We are talking about um, a strong body of evidence that shows the, re the really appropriate ways of using it. And um, the, the evidence that is being published in journals is showing that these, these substances are actually having much more powerful 
or, or proven to be more powerful interventions. So, for instance, this the the um, one study I think it was Johns Hopkins or Imperial College where they they're looking at this as a treatment for nicotine dependence, and they show that all the current prescription medications and the current um, sort of ther other sort of talk therapy processes are sort of down here on the, the graph in terms of the effectiveness. Psilocybin is like that. So we're not we're not calling for a, a an irresponsible mass rollout. We're saying let's change the drug policies. Let's do the research because if the early findings are anything to go by, then well, we should. Be let's do the research. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. in my nearly 40 years of being a doctor, mm. 20 years later, they've discovered the most terrible effects. And we've been told, oh, it's completely safe. It takes years and years and years to sorry. do proper trials. Sorry, uh, oh, sorry, so you're saying with other drugs? Yeah. Yeah. All drugs. You've got to be very careful of promoting any drug. And you've done thorough years and years and years of very, very careful long-term research. Fair enough. Can I respond a little yes. bit to that? So I hear what you're saying, and I'm absolutely with you 100% that the research needs to be done. Things need to be evidence-based before we can put them out there. But you yourself are a homeopath, and you know that homeopathic trials, the provings, are not accepted as clinical trials. You know, so it's all about our perspective. And sometimes, you know, years of research can be done. Let's take an example of a chemical drug that we use every day, Celebrex. I just put a patient on it today. I hate Celebrex. It's like a, an anti-inflammatory. It takes the pain away for sure. And when they did the clinical trials on it, it was a, like a miracle drug. Everybody was put on it. Like three years later, in a real society, they discovered actually... When you're using the drug on people who have, who are not clinical trial patients, where it's a specially select group, but when you're using it on the public, it's got the most horrendous side effects, death being one of them. You know, so, and that's from beautiful clinical trials. So I think we also have to keep it in, in a perspective. But I'm 100% with you that we do need some sort of evidence-based basis before one can make any recommendations, really. And then, you know, the other thing that is worth remembering is that psychedelics, we have a, as a, as a species, we have actually a very long track record with psychedelics. We've been using them for thousands of years. And incidentally, in very regulated contexts. So traditional communities that have been using psychedelics for, really, for a very long time, they, they, um, they're not regulations as the medical regulations that we're talking about, but they have very strict cultural containers. These substances are only used for specific ceremonial contexts a few times of the year. The, the only people who are allowed to administer the substance will be elders, people who are highly skilled and trained. And I mean, so, so we, we do have, you know, a, a, a context. Yeah, we do have a context. Mm. All right. And there were quite a few other hands. I've, yes. Uh, There's no pre-care and there's no post-care. Mm -hmm. So it would be absolutely fine if they went through this journey, but when they came out of the journey, they had six months of post-psychedelic care. And I've seen people fall apart completely. And that's now, because it's so uh, uh, underground, 
And that's the danger. Uh, and people who become psychotic because they have no knowledge that they might have a history in their family. So mm -hmm. I do think that it has an incredible use, but it has to be very carefully monitored. Mm -hmm. And as you say, in the societies that it is used, like ayahuasca, mm -hmm. you know, it's a shamanic practice, it's only done by, you know, mm -hmm. by, controlled by the shamans. So what I've tried to do repeatedly um, throughout the podcast is to highlight that very thing. So two things that I would just like to say at this point. The first thing is, from a harm reduction perspective, there are people who are going out and seeking this treatment. So there is a way for our medical community to be responsible in terms of supporting people in a way that doesn't put the medical person at risk, but also doesn't put the individual at risk. Um, and what I do try and do with the podcast repeatedly is say, go to a medical practitioner who understands how the process works and have yourself thoroughly screened for schizophrenia and psychosis to make sure that you're not on any other medication, including mood-stabilizing medication, that you shouldn't possibly be on while doing this experience. Is it even safe for you to come off that medication for a short period? You know, what about epilepsy, etc., etc.? Get yourself properly screened. And then the individual can go into the underground community if they deem it safe, have a supported session, and then you come back out, and then you have integration if you need it. So that's one of the, 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 the models that I recommend. Because people are going to do this anyway. If, they, if they're not supported, they're going to be more at risk. So that's the one thing. The second thing, and this is in the most recent podcast that I did where I called it Going Gonzo, because it's about myself as a science writer going a bit gonzo by by breaking the rules and in, in, in putting this podcast up without having a, the editorial and accountability structures of a newsroom. So I have to be very careful that I maintain ethical practice. But at the same time, this is the risk that the underground community um, faces, in that because it's underground, it's secret. And it's very much, there is peer-to-peer -peer, peer accountability, but it's very much an in-group accountability. And um, from what I've seen, there are a lot of very ethical people out there but there are also some practitioners that I've encountered. Dare I say that we use the word practitioners? I've, I have encountered either myself or I've heard stories reported from people in certain contexts where the behavior of the practitioners has been very deeply unethical. And, um, and I try to bring that through in the podcast. And again, you know, if these practices are happening underground, it's, it's more likely that the unethical practitioners will get away with it. So those individuals who come out of a psychedelic experience feeling very vulnerable, they are very suggestible. You know, the, the journey guide needs to make sure that they don't exploit that person at all. If someone is, is too vulnerable to drive home, they need the supportive context. It's very easy to put that support in place. If people are accountable and we have best practices in place, there are lots of best practices available to us. Um, I think, I think what, what we need is the kind of accountability which is hard to have if we can't be transparent and open. And I also think the volume that you take, the quantity, is critical because you can easily overdose if you're an amateur or you're not taking something you supervise. You could have something, you know, a, a quantity that's double your, you know, for your weight and, it, and you can have the most horrendous time. Same, right. yeah. same with ayahuasca. Yeah, so in terms, in context of overdosing, you know, nobody has ever overdosed to, to the point where there's organ damage or death from, for example, cannabis or mushrooms, I believe, or even ayahuasca. 
the deaths that occur from ayahuasca overdose, if you have too much ayahuasca, from what I understand, you will just feel really awful and not remember anything. But the danger comes if you're not properly taken care of. So you might, say you're taking it in the context of you're in the Amazonian jungle and you've taken an overdose and you're not in control, you might run into the jungle and get lost. Or you might run into the desert and get lost. But it's not from, the danger is not from the substance itself, but from the care. And I completely agree with you, there are charlatans out there. There are charlatan doctors out there also, to be honest. And until one is able to be, as Leone says, to be transparent and to be able to practice legally so that there can be some kind of accountability and regulation, I think it is a dangerous thing. You're absolutely right with that. But the danger is more in the care than the substance, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at the literature around this, so um, the medical community talks about the, the risks and harms associated with this being measured in three ways. It's how addictive they are, how toxic they are to the body, and then the behavior while you're in an intoxicated state. So, in terms of addiction, I mean, there's just no evidence to show the substance is addictive. In, in fact, if anything, it's anti-addictive, which is why it's, it's being used to treat addictions to other Schedule 7 substances, which is part of the, the bad press. I, I disagree. So, so, can I just finish yeah. the point? Thank you. We also need to move on. I, I don't want to not allow you space, but we need, do need to share the room. The, uh, so, the, 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 the risk of addiction, the risk of um, toxicity, and again, um, it, Psilocybin is not like alcohol or heroin where you have a little bit too much and you actually have a, your organ, you, you can have a, an organ failure response. Psilocybin doesn't work like that. Uh, it's almost impossible to, to um, take enough to actually have organ damage. I think the only way you can really do it is if you ate so much that it's expanded in your stomach and put your stomach in. The, the real risk is, and I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being frivolous, but, um, you know, it's not like heroin, you take a tiny little bit too much and your breathing stops and you could asphyxiate. Um, the, the real risk, as Renee said, is in behavior. What happens in the intoxicated state? And if you're responsible, it's very, very easy to mitigate that risk. I think what is irresponsible is to say that there is no risk. So what I have heard come through from the, the underground community, a lot of people say, no, no, but there are no risks associated with psilocybin. What I think they're doing, I don't think it's a deliberate attempt to mislead. I think it is an overcorrection to try and address the inflated myths around the, 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 the believed harms. And uh, I understand why people do that, but I do think it's irresponsible to say there are no risks. What it's responsible to say is that it's easy to mitigate those risks. Yes. Um, um, just in comes to how you behave when you're intoxicated. Now, I would thought shutting down the amygdala would be pretty dangerous if I'm alcohol. Sorry, I'm, I'm struggling to hear you. Sure. So, uh, you use the term shutting down the amygdala, and I would have thought that, um, that would be quite a dangerous thing for me if I'm out there having that shut down, because if I confronted something that was potentially dangerous, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Before I would actually just stay with it. So, um, I don't... Uh, the question is more around and how that's applied. So in the kind of hero dose approach where it's well contained, that's then not a problem. But in the microdosing environment, how does the shutting down the amygdala uh, mm. yeah, mm. 
So I think in the in the when you're taking a mega dose or a big dose, definitely your judgment is going to be off. You might see a snake and think, oh, it's so beautiful. It could well happen. But I think in the mic, because it doesn't shut the amygdala, doesn't shut the amygdala down. It it dampens it or it moderates it. And I think, although I don't know enough because there isn't really research, so I'm only speculating what would happen with the microdose, but they really, I haven't read the research. But I would imagine that it's a much more gentle effect. So it would be probably, if you can imagine, you took a benzodiazepine and you felt more relaxed, even though you might actually be in danger, but you would feel relaxed, but cognizant enough to know you need to take action. I would imagine it is a similar sort of process without the addictive elements to it. But honestly, this is speculation. The trials just aren't there. And what we're really advocating for is that the trials be done. So, so 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 thank you and I think I think maybe yeah you know what we what one tends to do in a in a public context is use shorthand and I think that was an inappropriate shorthand so thank you for that just a very quick thing on on dosing um, to which I think speaks to um, what Ren was saying now about a lack of research. So the, the brain scans, the MRI scans that have been done on psilocybin users have been people having a large dose. So we're talking two grams. So, so the hero's dose that people talk about, that's five grams, which um, is kind of what the underground community basically recommends. And that's a, that's a very deep dose experience. You're going to be incapacitated for several hours. Um, a, a smaller dose is about a two gram dose. I personally think that you know, you can have a really profound experience on two grams, you don't have to go for five. But all of the brain scans have involved that level of intensity where you've seen a reduced blood flow to the amygdala and reduced blood flow to what they call the default mode network of the brain, which is a, a reduced blood flow to that area is what results in the, in the snow, the repowdering of the snowy hill. Microdosing. No, I haven't seen any research that's shown the impact on the brain on a microdose. So a microdose, for those of you who don't know, is a sub-perceptible amount. So if you take psilocybin and the rocks sparkle, you're having a psychedelic experience. If you're having a microdose, the rocks shouldn't sparkle. You shouldn't have any ex experience of, of, a, of any kind of tweaking to your senses. So whether or not, I mean, how much blood flow and oxygen use in the amygdala you would, you would see while someone's being scanned on a microdose, I don't know. It would be lovely to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting question. Honestly, don't know. No research. Don't know what. No, we've got to answer here from somebody. I've only ever known microdosing on my daughter-in-law because of a neck injury and for headaches. Never anything else. Only microdosing. And it worked for her. So would you, mind, would you be able to tell us um, what regime she was using and, and what the change in her symptoms were as a result? Um, no, I can't. I don't actually know because it's her husband that actually grows it and, and, and gives it to her. But it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. But she has mm -hmm. the slightest little girl. 
So it would be okay. Okay. So it would be very interesting to to find out um, how much she's taking and 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 how it impacts on the headaches. Okay. Yeah, but great to know that the microdosing has had a good effect, at yeah. least in her case. I know that many people, sorry, and I see your question, I, many people swear by doing one deep dose and then following up with microdosing. Um, what I have not seen is, is uh, any uh, published peer-reviewed evidence that psilocybin microdosing works. I've heard lots and lots of anecdotal evidence that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was, uh, who's, where does Fatiman work? Um, uh, James Fadiman did the LSD survey, so he got people who were microdosing on LSD to report back, and obviously it's it's it was an online survey. It's all self-reported, so it does have to be you know regarded with a little bit of um, skepticism. But overwhelmingly, it seemed that LSD microdosing has a lot of benefits in terms of mood stability, greater creative flow, and um, uh, and connection with others. I haven't seen a similar survey for psilocybin, but most of the people who uh, uh, self-report around psilocybin in anecdotes say pretty much the same thing. Yeah, just a problem with that, uh, the LSD microdosing, uh, and I think that study is still going on, but they are, you have the, the people who contribute all have to obtain their own LSD to microdose. So, who knows what doses are, are actually being used. So scientifically, it's not brilliant, but it does add anecdotal evidence, really. Can I share a little story about microdosing? So my brother was uh, suffered from addiction, depression, you name it. Um, got really bad, went and did a flood dose, and microdose thereafter, which allowed him, enabled him to come off of antidepressants from 15 years. Um, the microdosing has helped to stabilize his overall mood. Um, it actually, the f- combination of the flood doses and the microdosing totally stopped all addictive behaviors, like a wow. switch. Um, he's now still dealing with the depression side and the anxiety, but um, it, it seems to stabilize general mood and general uh, kind of feeling of well-being um, in a remarkable way. How long since he came off the antidepressants? It's, uh, so that was last year, February, that he started weaning off of the antidepressants. So he's been off since then. So it's 18 months or so. Um, and he's done several flood doses uh, over the last 18 months. And he's found that after, say, three or four months, it's kind of time for another deep dive. And it seems to reset. It does the, the powdering of the snow, reset, and then the microdosing sort of maintains a thread. So that three, month, three to four month uh, window is so interesting because it's come through in so oh, many of the anecdotes mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. come through in the trials as well. So yeah. with, the, with the Johns Hopkins trials, what they found, so um, uh, overwhelmingly after the, the dosing sessions, um, people, some people were in full remission, some started to see the symptoms coming back after three to four months and then they needed to go for another session. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hearing time and again from the underground world is that every three to four months they feel the dip come back, so they go for a quick session and then they're on the way again. Yeah, and what would be really interesting to see is over the years whether that need for the dip becomes less and less mm-hmm. so the intervals yeah. can become longer. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Yes. So, um, are there any research, I know someone who's got Pain and the diagnosis is also confusing, like it's bent for fibromyalgia. And so that psychosomatic aspect, what I find interesting is that if it is a spiritual aspect and then also the pain, is there any research that you 
not, not that I've come across, but it is something that I've been asked a few times before and I need to go and look. So, watch the space. You've given me another chapter. Yeah. I think, actually, I think there is some research on fibromyalgia and psilocybin. Um, that I've seen, but to be honest, I can't remember the details of it. But I reckon that if we Google, we can find. I know some research has been done, and maybe you can you can give me your details afterwards, and I'll try to find those papers for you. Okay. Okay. Mm. Um, I've just got a very Suicide. There's also children being given really hectic drugs like Ritalin all the time, which I think are, you know, personally I think they're worse. So, like, what? I know that there's probably no answer, but what can be done in terms of that kind of? I mean, I don't know if you've ever read Aldous Huxley, The mm -hmm. Island. Um, he uses the idea of magic mushrooms as a kind of um, in, um, a kind of initiation for teenagers thing, but in the island, which is this magical place where everything is ideal. He's, he's obviously worked it all out. It's quite cleverly worked out. I think that's a very good question, and I'm so glad that you asked it. Um, there are a couple of things. I would love to see or know better what happens in traditional communities. At what point in, you know, um, uh, some of the Amerindian communities were they allowing the rite of passage to happen involving these substances? I'd love to know. Um, what the cultural container is. When are you old enough in those older communities to start using the substance? That's one thing. The second thing which Michael Pollan brings through in his book and for those of you who are really interested in the subject, I would strongly urge you to read Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind. Behind your head. Is it? Brilliant. <laughs> yes, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that he points out is that um, with uh, psychosis and schizophrenia, often it's, a, it's an illness that only starts to show itself in your late teens or early 20s. Unfortunately, that's often when you're starting to experiment and individuate, etc., etc. So it's quite difficult to screen an early adolescent for that kind of uh, predisposition, um, which I think means it's harder to manage for, for risk. So, so that is, I think, an important thing to remember. Um, yeah. I just some interesting research that I came across with Asperger's and autism. And people using psilocybin to microdose, which is helping to manage social anxiety, um, nervousness, um, OCD behavior, all sorts of things. There's some very interesting stuff um, that people are exploring in that whole area. Mm. In fact, that's a, another interesting point. Um, there is a, a medical study that's just been published now showing that MDMA, which again is not a psychedelic but works in a similar way, has been used very effectively to help people with autism, not to treat the autism, but to deal with the social anxiety. Mm. And, and maybe this is a great point to end on, is that some of the, this research is showing these substances to be so promising that the argument is these shouldn't be legalized just for the treatment of sick people, but should be used yeah. for the betterment of world mm. people too. And again, we're not pushing for some kind of reckless rollout, an orgy of good time. <laughs> We're calling for 
an open, honest, evidence-based, rational, intelligent adult conversation that is not skewed by myth or ideology. Let's be responsible to each other. You know, um, a couple of things that happened after, immediately after the cannabis ruling. Um, we started to see lots of people smoking their joints in the car. Now, the cannabis ruling said that it is now legal to smoke in private, which includes within the privacy of your car. It did not make it legal to drive intoxicated on cannabis or anything else. So, again, it's uh, to, to borrow that really wonderful quote from the, science, from the astronomer Carl Sagan. He says, let's be open-minded but not so open-minded that our brains fall out. <laughs> 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 <laughs>